joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court Podcast. I am Leanne Mulcahy QC, a Silk at Fountain Court Chambers. Today's episode is a recording of a virtual panel discussion we hosted in July 2021 on the topical issue of insurance aggregation. Joining me in the discussion were Ben Lynch QC of Fountain Court, Sonia Campbell of Mishkondorea, Christine Williams of Travellers, and Ingrid Hobbs of Kennedy's. I provide a more detailed introduction to each of our speakers during the session, so I won't do that again now, but we were very grateful to each of them for joining us for such an interesting session. It was fantastic to hear such a variety of viewpoints from across the market. During the discussion, we spoke about various issues relating to aggregation, including why it continues to be a difficult subject, the construction and application of aggregation wording, issues specific to particular business lines, such as professional indemnity and business interruption, and aggregation in the context of claims relating to COVID-19. We also touched on reinsurance. We refer to a number of cases within the session, and you can find details of those within the show notes for this episode or on the podcast page of the Fountain Court website. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to our Fountain Court insurance event on aggregation, hot topics and views across the market. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to our very eminent panel of speakers this evening. I can start by introducing Christine Williams, who's a barrister, mediator and chartered insurer and is managing general counsel at Travellers. She was until recently the chair of Byla and last year was voted voted Insurance Lawyer of the Year by the uh, Women in Insurance Awards. We have Sonia Campbell, who's head of insurance at Mishkondorea. She specialises in policyholder insurance coverage disputes across a range of lines and sectors and also advises on reinsurance and captive issues. And Sonia led the claim for the Hospitality Action Group in the FCA business interruption test case. We have Ingrid Hobbs, who is head of Kennedy's Complex Casualty Coverage Team and specialises in insurance and reinsurance disputes, again, across many classes of business um, and often with a multi-jurisdictional aspect. And her practice involves acting for insurers and reinsurers, which will no doubt nicely complement Sonia's policyholder focus and Christine's experience as a GC inside an insurer. And last but not least, my colleague Ben Lynch QC, who's described by the legal directories as frighteningly astute. He can be quite frightening in other ways as well, but um, <laughs> that's that's certainly true. He appeared in AIG and Woodman, the leading case on aggregation in the solicitors indemnity insurance market. And like me, he's currently advising on aggregation issues in the business interruption insurance context. And he appeared for the Hiscox Action Group in the FCA test case, and as well as in a more recent case for travellers, Rockcliffe and travellers defeating the argument that COVID amounts to plague. So we're going to start by sharing some general thoughts on topical issues in aggregation, and then we'll go on to consider recent developments in the context of three specific areas, being professional indemnity insurance, then COVID-19 claims, and reinsurance. 
But if I may just start with a disclaimer, the inevitable disclaimer, we're all practitioners and we are providing observations from our own experience and practice. Obviously, that's not legal advice. And particularly in the context of aggregation, these matters are very fact specific and policy specific. So please don't rely on what we say as legal advice. And we also inevitably have to respect confidentiality in ongoing cases. So that may limit to, hopefully, a small extent, the extent to which we can discuss matters that are relevant to ongoing cases. But subject to that caveat, I hope we'll have a very interesting seminar. So with that introduction, I'm going to start with the hot topics in aggregation. And what I'll do is just briefly introduce aggregation. Obviously, we've got a very well-informed audience, but uh, as you know, aggregation clauses are a ubiquitous feature of both insurance and reinsurance contracts. And generally, they govern what happens if there's more than one claim under the same policy in the same year. Where there are two or more than two or more separate losses covered by a policy, the question is whether they can be treated as a single loss for the purpose of either the excess or deductible or the limit of indemnity. And the the test is usually whether the losses are unified uh, in some way, linked by unifying factor of some kind. And that is a very fact-specific question. Sometimes aggregation assists the insured by limiting the deductible. Sometimes it assists the insurer by limiting the number of limits of liability. Um, depending on the policy and the particular fact um, situation or the circumstances of the insured, aggregation can work differently for different insureds who may take conflicting positions, um, which is something I think we may come to when we're discussing business interruption insurance in that context later in the seminar. But what is absolutely critical is the choice of language. And, and one needs to look at what are the key words that have been selected in the policy. And we have aggregation case law that, as you um, be very familiar with, distinguishes between narrow wording, such as losses arising from one event or one occurrence, and wider wording, such as one source or one cause or even wider one originating cause. And the unities test, which was formulated by Michael Kirk, you see, in 1972 in the Dawson's Field arbitration, and which was then endorsed by Mr. Justice Ricks, as he then was in the Kuwait Airways case, which mm. is to identify an event as something that happens at a particular time, in a particular place, in a particular way. And, and if it's initiated by human action with a particular intent, that's a test that remains prominent in the case law. And we also know that you need to construe aggregation clauses by reference to the time the contract has en- has, was entered into. So with that brief summary of aggregation, I'll turn now to the panel to discuss what you consider to be the current or topical aggregation issues and and why aggregation continues to be quite a difficult subject. So can I perhaps start with Ingrid? Yes, certainly. Thank you. This is quite an intimidating audience because A, I'm amongst a group of my peers, and B, a lot of you will be acting for parties in same disputes where you'll be taking different aggregation positions. So I suppose what that says at the outset is there are no right answers here. It's a very fact-specific analysis, and we wouldn't end up in court or in arbitration on these issues as regularly as we do if it were easy and the answers were clear. One of the aspects which sometimes doesn't help us is an un certain policy wording or an ambiguous wording, which then opens itself up to varying different kinds of interpretation. And when we've been preparing for today, we've been discussing the fact that perhaps the English courts 
in recent years are taking a more purposive approach than they have done in the past. And obviously, an ambiguous wording allows them to, I don't want to be pejorative in my in my description of the FCA case, but you'll get the other side of the fence from Sonia in a moment anyway. But it allows them to almost determine the result that they want to get to in a very political decision as the FCA litigation was. High profile, uh, the press portraying the business owners as the victims and the insurers as the evil beasts who wouldn't pay. And that backdrop then driving maybe the court to thinking, let's find out where we'd like to be and then we can get there by a route of reasoning. So I suppose the message from the insurance community's perspective from that is make your wordings as certain as you possibly can. That will never stop us all trying to interpret them in different ways. But the more clear the wording is, the better. The other thing, because I work pretty much all the time with the insurance market, is that this is an impactful issue for excess layers and primary layers as much as it is for insureds versus insurers or reinsurers. Because if you're on a primary layer, you might not want lots and lots of claims to hit you lots and lots of times. You might want all the losses to aggregate and drive up through a tower of insurance so that the excess layers share in the pain. And then you might be on the primary one risk and the excess another. So you're never going to have a consistent position that suits you. And high aggregation is determined, as you all know, will make a massive difference to the financial impact on both the insured, the number of excesses payable, and on the insurers and the reinsurers, depending on how those losses are clutched together. So I'll say no more for now, but it's you know it's obviously a very, very interesting area for us as, as lawyers. And there are a myriad of issues that it throws up. I won't go into the politics of the FCA test case and um, where the court ended up. Obviously, largely delighted with it. So, you know, in terms of one of the issues that Ingrid has touched on, it is about contract certainty. And if you look at the role of brokers historically, you know, 20 years ago, it was quite a different role in many ways. The market has changed so much. And, you know, when we started advising clients in this market, Brokers had a much more hands-on role, probably with fewer clients, where you would have those in-person meetings. They would know the client's business inside out, and they would be advising those clients, particularly on their insurance needs, what they wanted, what cover they wanted. The cover would be explained. Obviously, there were still issues with wordings and you know ambiguity. But I think what we have seen over time is the development of that market, more and more clients, bigger clients, organisations, lots of different insurance products, you know, products being sold online without any broker expertise or other insurance expertise being given to policyholders. And so I do wonder whether we need to take a step back and look at how people are buying insurance, what they want, what they think they're getting. That that must go, you know, some way towards improving the position in terms of the ambiguity how much it will do I don't know because as I say we've always seen disputes over wordings that hasn't really changed in the entire time I've been practicing but I think we do need to look at how insurance is sold and what the polders think they're buying because there's a real disconnect at the moment. Thank you Sonia. Christine what's your perspective coming from I'm looking at aggregation from the point of view of fraud and dishonesty. And that's a very 
very tricky and murky waters to to be in. But just some general points I'd like to make, and then just hearing what Ingrid has said about contention between the layers, primary layer and an excess layer. So in in travellers, we still see a number of aggregation cases, uh, and we're seeing that there is a contention between primary insurer and excess insurer. But what we're not seeing are these cases going to a full-blown litigation. Uh, So what does that mean? Uh, That means there's an absence of precedence within the market for market practitioners and insurance carriers to to, to refer to, and that presents its its difficulties in itself. So, you know, disputes are more difficult uh, to, to resolve. And secondly, on the question of dishonesty, it is very difficult, uh, as we all know, to prove dishonesty and fraud. And it's a very, very important factor when we're looking at aggregation and we're looking at dishonesty, uh, which is put into the mix and to try and unravel it to see whether it satisfies the test that's laid down in the minimum terms and conditions for uh, solicitors, for example. Again, what we're seeing as carriers and certainly within travellers is the impact of the Third Party Rights Against Insurance Act. And again, we're seeing more uh, notifications of claims that are arising under under that act. So these are some of the points that I'm going to deal with in a little bit more detail uh, later on. And Ben, what's your perspective? Great. Thank you very much. I suppose in terms of overview points, there are so many possibles, and I've just really picked one because I'm seeing it quite a lot. And it, it may be that we all see this point a fair bit. There seem to be lots of aggregation disputes around and inevitably arguments about the proper construction, application of the wording. The the issue that that I've seen come to the fore a fair bit recently is the relevance of factual background and in particular negotiations. How far, if at all, is any of that admissible? And And it seems to come up more and more, perhaps, you know, in the modern day because of the importance of uh, aggregation, the sums involved, as Ingrid's already indicated, the the impact of a decision one way or the other on an aggregation issue can be effectively all or nothing, really, in terms of the value of recovery. Obviously, pre-contractual negotiations generally not admissible. But as we all know, pre-contractual negotiations are admissible to elucidate the general object of the contract. It is a tricky area for good reason. Both sides often invoke factual matrix, and for good reason, often factual matrix can be extremely broad. And where the factual matrix appears, realistically, will often be in the negotiations, because that's where the party sale will look. This is, this is clear intention. This is, in, this is clear matrix. This is commercial background. This is, we fall into the category of elucidating the general object of the contract. The reality being that, as I'm sure we'll all know this case, the Excelsior Group Productions case, Mr. Justice Flo, as he was then, saying, it seems to me that there is a very fine line between looking at negotiations to see if the parties have agreed on the general objective of a provision as part of the task of interpreting interpreting the provision and looking at the negotiations to draw an inference about what the contract meant, which is not permissible. A line so fine it almost vanishes. So that's a good indicator of the kinds of arguments that uh, Mr. Justice Fleur, as he was then, has heard before. The reality being, we will all 
continue to look at matrix. We will all continue to look at negotiations, commercial purpose, and so on. Where the line appears in any given case will, will be intensely fact-specific. And as Justice Flo, as he was then, is absolutely right to say it's a line that almost vanishes. It will depend on the case. It, I just want to make that point early on because it is something that seems to me to be coming up quite a lot, but for very good commercial reasons on both sides. Thank you, Ben. About whether there is a an overlap, you know, that's coming to the fore between block notifications and aggregations. Yes, I mean, this is something which I think if you look at some of the big problems that have hit the market recently, Grenfell and the, and the Grenfell aftermath, if you like, for all the DNB contractors and cladding contractors has been very problematic. And Grenfell fire happened in June 2017. And we're now more than four years on and a lot of the remedial works that are said to be necessary on high buildings have not even been started. And we all know that with the FCA litigation, similarly, there are still claims that are not paid. There's still issues to be worked out. And I know, Leanne, you're going to come on to some reinsurance issues that are going to be the next thing that we all have to deal with in the aftermath of that litigation. But these, if you like to look at the underlying problems, the first one being problematic compliance with building regulations. And the next one being how do you interpret disease clauses and at the premises and the pandemic generally in the context of what the intention of the insurers was just to pick up some of Ben's points when the contracts were formed and then what the insureds can expect from their insurers in circumstances where exclusions are going to be put on on the renewals in relation to in the one on the one hand cladding and on the other hand disease going forward and how broad those exclusions may be because insurers feel that they've had to suck up an awful lot of cost as a result of those two massive issues. And for me, the block notification issue is really interesting and it does link in to aggregation because it's difficult to see how if an insured gathers together a bunch of issues and tries to notify them as a block or a blanket notification as the policy expires, and, and it says it has to do that because its insurers are going to exclude such losses going forward, then insurers are likely to use that and say, well, you said they were all the same thing. That's the basis on which you notified them on block. How can you now say, no, no, they're all individual because you want to deal with them in a certain way and vice versa, whoever has the, the argument that suits the policy wording and suits their financial position best. So I think that looking at block notifications is going to be an issue that it's tied up with aggregation and also it's tied up with scope of cover. So how broad is that block notification in terms of its scope and are all the things that are listed in it actually related in such a way that they should all be scooped back into the expiring year should claims develop? And I think on that, it the policyholders are being asked more and more in relation to block notifications to provide more detail than they ordinarily would. So the shopping list style that was looked at in Kidsons is no longer acceptable. They're being asked to provide details of actual potential claimants, dates, you know, more fundamental details around issues that could give rise to claims. But I still think that's quite a difficult area because I think the courts will have some sympathy for insureds who say, well, hang on a minute, I've been paying my premium for years and years of cover and I've had a rough year 
And now I see this big fat exclusion coming, which means I'm not going to have any of that cover going forward. So I'm quickly going to scoop as much stuff in as possible to try and get as much cover as possible on the expiring year. And, you know, it's it's very difficult because that's the impact sometimes of putting on very broad exclusions. So I can see disputes in that area going forward. Thank you. I mean, that's really helpful to set the scene and see what are the themes that are developing at the moment and and crossing our desks. So if we now start to look at some specific areas where aggregation is an issue, consider some recent cases and look in a bit more depth. So we start with um, professional indemnity insurance aggregation issues. And, And Ben, can I hand over to you to introduce that? Great. Thank you very much. I'll be talking for a short amount of time. But um, I really just want to set the scene. And obviously, I'm not going to summarise all of the law of aggregation in relation to professional indemnity insurance in five minute slot. It's just an interesting area for obvious reasons. There are lots of claims against professionals. Professionals are insured generally. And often, in fact, one of the reasons for making a claim against professional in the first place is that they are insured. Hence, the insurance policy wording will be acutely of interest and particularly aggregation wording in those kinds of cases. There are then a large range of different types of professionals with different types of aggregation wordings. Some are mandatory. So we've got solicitors on the MTC, we'll all know uh, that wording. We'll all know the AIG case in the Supreme Court helpfully explaining, at least clarifying the meaning of LIM4 under the MTC Clause 2.5 aggregation wording, if not other wording as well. And it's slightly overlooked the impact of the Supreme Court decision on LIMs 1 and 2 and possibly 3 as well of the MTC wording. And I'll just come back to that in a minute. Obviously, under that, the LIM4, the key issue being what is related, the wording being similar acts or omissions in a series of related matters or transactions, again, ultimately always coming back to that question being intensely fact-specific. And that's a point that uh, Leanne's rightly made and a number of people have already rightly made. We'll always be coming back to the facts. That's just one example. There are a number of other quite helpful recent cases on the MTC wording. So the Baines and Dixon, uh, Coles and Gill case about uh, aggregation of claimant groups on the MTC wording where there were multiple frauds by a solicitor. Now, in in that case, interestingly, the argument was put under LIM2, which is one series of related acts or omissions. And there may well be people on on this seminar who know the case much better than I do. I I don't know if anyone was directly involved. I suspect um, maybe one or more people were. The oddity in that case seems to me that the arguments around subclause two, one series of related acts or omissions, seem to me to be heavily influenced by the approach taken by the Supreme Court to that wording in AIG. Because, of course, in AIG, the Supreme Court said, well, look, that wording was addressed in Lloyd's TSB. I mean, obviously, that wording wasn't actually technically addressed in Lloyd's TSB because Lloyd's TSB wasn't a solicitor's case. But the, the wording or very similar wording was. And that was given uh, the construction, or at least the the construction was explained in AIG. That argument, as far as I can see from the Dixon-Coles case, wasn't deployed. But anyway, it it shows the the range of arguments that even just one clause can give rise to in the solicitor's world and in the professional indemnity world generally. Of course, there are other wordings. Very helpful recent cases that, frankly, horrifying 
Spire and RSA case about the errant surgeon. Uh, and I'm sure everyone will know the frankly incredibly gruesome and troubling facts of the surgeon who injured a number of women and his victims fell into two groups. First consists of patients where he carried out subtotal mastectomies uh, when a total mastectomy was indicated. And the second group uh, consists of patients where the surgeon performed wholly unnecessary surgery. I mean, it's horrifying beyond words. In that case, there was a very different wording, one source or original cause, aggregation clause, which for the purpose of the limits of indemnity, aggregated claims consequent on or attributable, attributable to the source or cause. And the question was, could claims arising from one, a surgeon negligently performing the wrong kind of surgery on one group of patients, and two, the same surgeon deliberately carrying out unnecessary surgery on another group, whether or not those can be aggregated together as one claim. And the answer so far is no, they're separate, but that is being appealed. Uh, I don't know the progress of that, and I, so it may be soon, it may not be, but it's very interesting. It's a very helpful summary, in fact, of the uh, principles on originating cause wording in that judgment, and we'll have to wait and see what the Court of Appeal makes of it. But the recent cases go beyond that as well. It's not just about the aggregation wording itself. There was the interesting guide dogs for the blind case addressing declarations and the question as to whether or not the court, if it couldn't give make declarations under the 1930 Act, see the post office case, for example, did it have an inherent jurisdiction to make the same or similar declarations? The answer was yes. Now, obviously, the importance of that slightly falling away because as time passes, the 1930 Act recedes into the distance. A number of the issues under the 2010 Act, they don't exist under the 2010 Act the way they did in the 1930 Act. But again, very interesting to see, and this may link in with the purposive approach of the court sometimes. The court said, well, look, we can. We've got inherent jurisdiction to make an order that on the authorities are simply not able to make under the 1930 Act. The answer being, in that decision at least, just because we can't do it under the 1930 Act doesn't mean we can't do it otherwise. And so that perhaps that's a, a purposive approach to, to the issue, I don't know. But it's certainly an interesting area. And following on from that, I'll hand over to Christine. Ben, ben thank you. I think, Ben, you, you raised some very good points and issues that are still around regarding the minimum terms and conditions and how they're interpreted. Uh, as I said earlier, we still see a number of aggregation claims uh, they're often settled confidentially. Uh, and, and I would like to share uh, this afternoon travellers' experience of, of a very high-profile case relating to uh, aggregation and dishonesty. Uh, I'm sure most of you on the call uh, will know of the Wilmot Solicitors case back in 2009, which uh, was a very sophisticated uh, mortgage fraud case. Just to give a summary of the background there, this was a case where uh, the bad actor in this case, um, Jonathan Gilbert, in collaboration with uh, Mark Entwistle, were involved in a very sophisticated mortgage fraud, whereby they obtained mortgages and, and loans from various mortgage entities. This was passed to, to Mr. Gilbert, who then, uh, in, in essence, uh, created a very profitable property empire worth over £30 million. 
Um, essentially what they were doing was they were obtaining loans for properties not registering title. And it all came undone with the banking crisis um, in 2008. But a very sophisticated way of transacting, which was difficult to unravel. Uh, now, travellers at the time were insuring Wilmot solicitors, and we were notified of one case. Uh, and then during the policy year, as, as, as Ingrid is re- relating to, uh, you know, the block notifications were coming through. Uh, and we realised that something wasn't quite right. Uh, fortunately, within Travellers, we have a very experienced team of lawyers, some of who came from the Solicitors Indemnity Fund uh, and were very practised in investigating potential fraudulent claims. And this was a very tricky one to unravel uh, and looking at aggregation to be able to apply uh, the strict rules of the um, minimum terms and conditions in relation to similar acts or omissions and a series of, of related matters or transactions. So what we needed to do was to provide evidence of an overarching uh, dishonesty and fraud uh, related to the um, activities of the fraudulent uh, and the dishonest partner in Wilmot's solicitors. Now, this is a matter that went to court. We were brought into court by Godiva Mortgages, uh, seeking uh, a declaration uh, regarding our application of the minimum terms and conditions. Now, this was settled, but we went through a very, very intense and in-depth process of unravelling the the fraud in this particular case to be able to show that we felt that we were correct in applying uh, a limit to to aggregate the notification of these claims. So it was a little bit like putting together a very complicated uh, jigsaw puzzle. And that was over a, a number of years, which required collaboration with law enforcement officers, with reinsurers, with experts, forensic experts, to be able to piece together the puzzle. Because with dishonesty and fraud cases, as we all know, the tracks are very well covered. And it is difficult uh, to unravel this, and particularly when you're trying to apply this in an aggregation case. So with travellers, when we're looking at aggregation, as I say, we still do get these cases, where we see potentially uh, that there are and in, there's an indication that potentially there is a fraud. We will painstakingly look into that and look to the background of that. But recognising uh, that, uh, as Ben has alluded to, there are still areas out there that the courts haven't resolved uh, and that we are, to a certain extent, battling against. Uh, I just want to say something about uh, the third party right against in- insurers. And again, as I said earlier, We are seeing claims coming in now under this heading. And certainly uh, in the Wilmots case, uh, they became insolvent, I believe it's 2009. But we're seeing this happen and we're seeing an easier pathway, I would suggest, uh, to insurance carriers via the the Act. And I just want to close by saying, you know, with the COVID and the current situation that we're in at the moment, insurance carriers always need to be looking at claims that are presented to them. Because in terms of um, difficulties in the market, that's where insurance carriers see that they will more likely be presented with fraudulent claims. Uh, So with that, I'll I'll leave it there. So that's just uh, an insight 
uh, from an insurance carrier where we do deal uh, with allegation issues on solicitors' policies. And we do recognise that we have still issues to look at around being able to aggregate our claims. Well, thank you very much, Christine and Ben. Um, we may come back to some questions on that later if there's time. But I suggest we turn now to our second subject-specific topic, which is uh, COVID-19 aggregation issues, which is particularly topical at the moment. And can I start by asking you, Sonia, um, to speak about this from the insured's perspective, and then perhaps we'll hear from Ingrid as to the insurer's perspective on, on, on the same issues. Sure. I mean, obviously, given the audience we have, I think that many of the attendees will be dealing with these issues anyway. But for those who aren't so familiar with the aggregation issues, I suppose from an insured's perspective, aggregation and whether or not you can aggregate claims can make a huge difference. Um, And so, you know, if you look at a, a pharma company as an insured, huge numbers of mass tort type claims, if they have product liability cover, um, say with an excess of 50 million and just for example say they have 100 losses million unless those claims are aggregated as a batch and notified as a batch none of the claims are recoverable they all fall within the excess and that insurance is not triggered if however they can aggregate them as a single claim then you know obviously they can make a 50 million recovery because it's one claim it's 100 million and they've got a 50 million excess so you can see it could be zero to 50 million on that basic example. And again, you know, in different ways in which aggregation works for an insured, if there are just two claims, 60 million each, with the same 50 million excess, if if they're both treated separately, you recover 20 million. If they're treated as a single claim, you recover 70 million. So again, the numbers really matter in terms of the way in which aggregation can be applied to claims Obviously, it works both ways. And as you said at the beginning, Leanne, it can be different for different insureds. And effect is different depending on the nature of the business and the nature of the loss. So, and as Ingrid said, none of this is simple or straightforward, which is why everything has to be looked at on a case-by-case basis. But, you know, in COVID, what we've seen is we've seen the first run, I suppose, of, of the losses with these businesses being hit so hard by the pandemic, looking at is there insurance at all? And we've come to a position where we now actually have the Supreme Court declarations, which aren't relevant to aggregation, but obviously deal with lots of issues, which mean insureds can recover, have recovered, and hopefully many more claims will be paid more swiftly. But what it leads to is the issues that were not resolved by the FCA test case, and aggregation issues were not before the court's. And those do now need to be dealt with because they have huge ramifications for policyholders, equally for insurers as well, and for reinsurers. So I feel like this is the next swathe of cases. We're involved in them. And obviously, we're at very early stages in seeing how these cases are developing, how they're going to be case managed by the court, how the aggregation case law will be applied. And I think in that context, although the Supreme Court and the Divisional Court, they didn't look at aggregation. Obviously, they looked at causation on occurrence, event, originating cause. But all of that is going to be relevant when we're looking at how these cases are now treated for aggregation purposes. And for an insured, the sublimits in these policies are often so low. You know, you can have large businesses 
who have quite large policy limits, but with such a low sublimit that actually if you're limited to just claiming your losses subject to that one sublimit, I mean, it doesn't touch the sides of yours. And that can't be what these policies, you know, I'll say were intended to do because these insureds have paid huge premiums, large limits, because they, you know, that's how their policies have been rated. And so if you have numerous locations, as an insured, buying a policy, for, you know, which has non-damaged BI cover, you'd expect to be able to recover your losses suffered by your different locations. And so it, this really is a hot topic. And I think it's recognised as such by insurers and insurers, to be fair. And these are issues that both sides want resolved so that everybody can move on. And we know there are a number of cases going through the commercial court at the moment, I think subject to a list being managed by Mr Justice Butcher. We'll have to see how these cases are are handled and and run, whether together separately or, uh, you know, we're keeping an eye on all of that. But I mean, some of the ones that people will know about, you've got the Corbyn and King claim, you've got Stonegate, you've got various eateries. I just feel we're at such an early stage, it's very difficult to know where this is going to go. But it feels like we're almost starting, you know, back where we were with the FCA test case, but with these hugely important issues again, it's the second phase of of the COVID-19 claims. Thank you, Sonia. Ingrid, do you want to um, give the insurer's perspective on COVID, COVID claims? Yeah, I. it's difficult because uh, this is a live issue, as everyone knows. And my involvement in it is more from the reinsurance angle than the direct angle, because as Sonia says, the courts haven't really looked at it from an aggregation perspective. But I just sort of stepping back from it for a moment, not getting too bogged down in the arguments that we will all be grappling with over the coming months. I think it's important to say that some of the wordings that we're now being asked to apply to the the COVID-19 situation did not to my mind, envisage this particular situation that we find ourselves in now. And you, know, you may say from the insured side, well, they've bought policies and they're entitled to cover. But the whole sort of triggers, if you like, and mechanism of applying that cover are the thing that we're all going to be grappling with. And I think it's important to distinguish between the cases that Ben and Christine have been talking about, which are in the claims made arena. And what the triggers are under professional liability policies are normally claims made and notified during the policy period. And the reference to the block notification earlier is because if you notify on block and they're they're deemed to be notifying circumstances, then those can attach back. But in the losses occurring wordings, we're looking at completely different triggers and we're looking at then what constitutes an occurrence or an event or catastrophe, whatever the language is. And in relation to the COVID losses, there will be huge debates as to whether or not the outbreak of the pandemic itself can be described as an occurrence or a catastrophe, or whether you have to go down to more refined definitions such as the the lockdowns themselves or individual outbreaks of disease. And the manner in which the courts treat those will dictate what happens certainly at a reinsurance level from an aggregation perspective. So I think that this is it's going to be difficult. And I think that there, there is case law, which we will all be combing over 
And we all know about the four unities test and we'll be looking at, you know, what is the same time, the same place, um, you know, losses occurring in a particular way and trying to, I would use the word shoehorn, the pandemic losses into that wording. And we don't have examples of losses of this nature being dealt with in that way. And when it comes to reinsurance level, it becomes, I think, very complicated because I always feel uh, sick mentioning it, but the hours clause will be another thing that has to be applied. And when you look at that and the kind of reinsurance wording for cat losses, that was not written to my mind with pandemic losses in mind. It was written to cover the aftermath of hurricanes and storms and things like that. And I think that we will we'll all have to take a very sensible approach to this. I know there's, there's a lot of broker activity around trying to, if you like, uh, foreshadow arguments. But I think that this is going to be tricky. And um, I imagine what will happen, which is something that Christine alluded to earlier, is there will be settlements. People will have conversations and they will agree to settle because there are so many sort of controversies around it all. But um, yeah, I mean, we looking at the losses and saying, it, you know, what is the occurrence or the event is, is of itself quite challenging. So we have our next round of test case <laughs> litigation. <laughs> um, and it was always the case aggregation was likely to be the next big, big issue. I'm, there will be other issues as well in that context. But talking about reinsurance, I think, leads us quite nicely into our final subject-specific topic, which which is just to look, um, albeit more briefly, at uh, reinsurance and aggregation. And uh, I will just deal with the two decisions arising out of the World Trade Center attacks in that context and then hand over to, to Ben, who will also speak about aggregation in the reinsurance context and uh, in particular the perspective, whose perspective are you looking at, at at the issue from? So just to discuss the the, the two World Trade Center decisions um, and, and just to explain them, the Harold Glenn decision, the AOA Nisei Insurance and Harold Glenn decision, which was about outward excess of loss reinsurance contracts and, and related to US legal claims for personal injury and death against the various airlines and security companies involved, was a situation where the commercial court upheld the arbitrator's decision, which was applying the four unities test, that there were two events. There were two separate hijacks, two planes, two towers. And even though the attacks were close in time and proximity, that wasn't sufficient. And neither was the fact that there was a common plan that of itself was not sufficient to constitute an occurrence of events. So, so Harold Glenn is two events. But by contrast, in Simmons and Gamel, which was again reinsurance covering excess liability for the Port of New York, which owned the World Trade Center site and, and was responsible for the massive cleanup operation that needed to take place. They had 10,000 respiratory claims by firemen, policemen, cleanup, construction workers, etc., and volunteers who were engaged in the rescue and recovery exercise, removing debris and dealing with the emergency operations and, and evidence gathering operations. Um, and it was alleged that the Port of New York had been negligent by exposing them to the dust that they inhaled due to the destruction of the Twin Towers by failing to provide them with adequate 
personal protective equipment, PPE, such as respirators, and by failing to provide adequate training. And the Port of New York paid out the claims, claimed on its reinsurance, and the commercial court again upholding the arbitrator's decision, um, but it was a different decision. It was a majority decision. They held that for the purposes of the reinsurance, all of the losses could be aggregated as arising from one event. So the wording in both cases was arising from from one event, but the arbitrators in the Simmons case held it was just one event, and it was the attacks on the World Trade Center which caused the destruction of the Twin Towers. And while the attacks might not have qualified as the proximate cause of the respiratory claims, it was held that the causal link between them and the attacks was a sufficiently significant cause of the claims um, and wasn't too remote and wasn't simply giving rise to the setting for the loss. It was a significant underlying event sufficient for aggregation. So question arises, are these conflicting decisions And on the face of it, yes, they are, because they're both construing a rising out of one event aggregation wording, but but one concluding there are two events and one concluding there's one event. But they can perhaps be reconciled by focusing on the different contexts, the different nature of the allegations being made and the perspective of the, the reinsured um, in each case. So in, in Herald Glenn, the focus on there being two separate events and two separate hijackings involving failings by each of the airlines and, and security companies suggests more of a disaggregation, whereas with the Simmons case, the Port of New York was responsible for the cleanup operation necessitated by an underlying event, i.e. the debris across the whole area resulting from the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center. And it involved a global failure to provide adequate PPE. So it may be that they're explicable, but on the face of it, they appear to be two conflicting decisions arising from uh, effectively the same wording. So I'll hand over to Ben now to um, consider a further topical issue in reinsurance at the moment. Thank you. Um, so it's just what one specific point, which in a sense is quite narrow, but uh, I think potentially very important, which is the, the question about whether one should still view aggregation clauses and apply them from the perspective of the reinsured post AIG and Woodman. And uh, we'll, we'll all no, now do, no doubt know the cases. So traditional view, see Kuwait Airways, Borneo and Dominion, Man and Lexington, etc. And that approach, which may well still be applicable, but query uh, in cases other than MTC wording, that approach is that the aggregation clause must be applied from the perspective of the insured, not the client or any third party claimant. Uh, And that's an objective test, but it's an objective test that takes into account all the relevant facts and circumstances from the insured's perspective. And so the court, under that approach, puts itself in the shoes of the insured and draws an objective conclusion from all the relevant facts and circumstances. Now, that's very well known. That's a completely traditional uh, approach, uh, very well established on high authority. However, the Supreme Court in AIG considered this issue in the context of the MTC wording, uh, and at Para 25 said that there was some debate about the application of the aggregation clause, whether that's to be viewed from the perspective of the insured or the solicitors. And the Supreme Court said the answer is that the application of the clause is to be judged not by looking at the transactions exclusively from the viewpoint of one party or another, 
but objectively taking the transactions in the round. Now, so there are lots of questions that arise from that. The first and most obvious one being, is that limited to MTC cases? Or is that, in fact, a new and different approach to the perspective of the insured issue in other aggregation contexts? That then leads to the next question. If it is different and if it is new, is that meant to put aside the others? Or do the others still apply, but in the other context? And this is limited to MTC only. Next question, is it different at all? How different is it to look at matters objectively, purely objectively, as opposed to the perspective of the insured? Now, the answer, again, as I keep banging this drum, but the answer will be on the facts. There will be cases where, from the perspective of the insured, matters are plainly related or arise from the same event or the the unities are made out, if you look at it that way, or, you know, it's obvious that there's uh, an originating cause, etc. However, that approach is applied, depending on the facts. Equally, there will be cases where, looked at objectively, matters are not to be aggregated. But there's also, quite possibly, situations where, in fact, looked at objectively, matters do aggregate. When looked at from the perspective of the insured, the insured might not know about whatever it is, whatever the overarching, overwhelmingly obvious aggregating factors, the the insured themselves may not be aware of. And a uh, a forensic uh, analysis of the relevant factual circumstances looked at purely objectively does give rise to wider aggregation. Equally, the the exact opposite might be true. It might be that looked at objectively, matters don't aggregate. So it will be fact-specific. But the starting point is, there is a question, it seems to me, as to whether the traditional approach to the perspective of the insured applies or not. It appears in the MTC wording it doesn't, according to the Supreme Court, but does that apply more broadly or not? To be clear, there's no indication from the Supreme Court's decision it does, but equally, it's, uh, it seems to me on the authorities to be an open and uh, live issue. Okay, thank you, Ben. I'm looking at the chat. We don't seem to have any questions at the moment. So I think what I'm going to do is just ask our panel. Um, we, we've talked about existing issues and current issues, and clearly, you know, there are live issues that are, uh, you know, in train. But if one spins forward, what do you see as the future issues that we may be talking about in, you know, one, two, five years time in the aggregation context? Christine? I'll be very brief. Sorry, and just throw out that I can see climate change being a huge aggregation topic down the line because, you know, insurers are certainly focusing on that. The other issue which will be interesting is attritional cyber attacks. So, I mean, for example... If, if an insurer insures lots of different retailers in a shopping centre and there's some sort of a cyber attack that takes all of their ability to transact credit card transactions off the grid for a while and they all put in claims, you know, what sort of way will that impact from a maybe a reinsurance aggregation perspective down the line and sort of looking at cause as well down the line in relation to claims co- arguably caused by climate change factors, again, 
what is the originating cause? You know, are there occurrences that one can trace back to? And will there be an ability to aggregate cases of that nature in the future? I would agree with Ingrid. I do think uh, very much that cyber aggregation is going to be an issue uh, down the line. It's an issue now. Uh, I think that the insurance market is, is gearing up for that. Uh, I think that's, that's a here and now and, and will escalate. I was going to say, I agree. We're seeing more and more cyber claims starting to develop and more and more attacks. So we are seeing that. Again, the number of cases we're doing in the environmental sector are growing. So I think that's also an issue. I mean, the thing I wonder about is, you know, with the pandemic, for example, and other kinds of loss that we're seeing emerging and the way that the insurance market is being hit and the broad exclusions that are being inserted, there's a question mark over whether some of these risks are going to be uninsurable and what happens then. And I think, you know, Ingrid and I had a word previously about the flood re-type context and how some of these sectors are going to have to be dealt with because you can't, you know, everything will come to a standstill if you can't actually get adequate insurance. So what happens? I think that's going to be an issue that we're going to have to look at over the coming years. Yes, there will have to be a pull re uh, with some of these risks. As you say, uh, Son, you cannot expect the commercial insurance market to be able to pick up uh, these risks because they are uh, so significant. Uh, and I really do. And this is something that the, you know, the market has looked at um, some years ago. It's a very real thing. Uh, my, my personal view is that we're still a little bit slow in, in moving forward with this, but it is uh, a very real threat, and particularly as we're seeing uh, an increase in cyber attacks and data breaches. I also wonder if there might be um, what I might call indirect COVID cases. So we we've already we already see DNO claims, for example, going up, and you know certainly there's big concern about that. What about how the world looks post pandemic? You know, in the usual way, if there's a a catastrophe in the markets, normally that sort of you know the water level drops or whatever the right analogy is and exposes all of the frauds that are going on or the wrongdoing and so on. What about wrongdoings that were only capable because of the pandemic? Everyone's working remotely. Perhaps the same scrutiny isn't there. Highly unusual circumstances, fraud in terms of uh, furlough payments, etc. All, all the kinds of things that you know, drop a giant rock in a pond and it creates huge waves. I suspect that there will be unknown unknowns out there, unexpected claims, which are indirect COVID claims, if I can put it that way. Well, I'm conscious of the time, so I think we'll we'll leave it there. So there you have it. Lots of interesting views and food for thought. Once again, I am very grateful to Ben Lynch QC of Fountain Court, Sonia Campbell of Mishkondorea, Christine Williams of Travellers, and Ingrid Hobbs of Kennedy's for sharing their experience and views about this topical issue. And I hope our listeners enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. Do join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast. Mm-hmm.